This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. episode today is about a very, very interesting individual, Anandia. Anandia, or going from Mohawk to English, Fred Loft. Six Nations individual, very, very important figure in the political history of the First Nations in Canada. He was the individual who organized the League of Indians of Canada, the predecessor of the National Indian Brotherhood, of the 1970s, the Assembly of First Nations, today's title. An incredible individual. Let's begin at the beginning. 1861, he's born. And in Six Nations territory, his family were, was a prosperous family, a farming family. And at Six Nations, the basic reality is there are two groups. The Christian, well, in the late 19th century, this was very strong. There was the Christian community and the Longhouse community, the traditionalists and the the Christians. And the Loft family belonged to the Christian family, but they had relatives and acquaintances in the Longhouse faith. And they intermingled. There were, it, it just really was. There wasn't any unnatural division. They were familiar with the traditional people as well as the Christian of the Christian. Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, this community, this family is quite unique. It moves in both circles, and uh, they're quite open they, this, uh, to the larger society, as, as well as being very proud First Nations people, proud Six Nations people. Well, Loft grew up in this environment. Their home, it was 200 acres, good, good-sized farm. It was called Forest Home. And actually, always please check the text for these episodes because I'm very blessed to be able to have a picture of Forest Home and it's color tinted. It's wonderful. That's where the home. So you'll see on the the text part you know, an illustration showing his where he grew up at Forest Home. Uh, it was obtained that by the way. It's very lucky. This story has got sort of an extra edge to it because I met Fred Law's daughter. Uh, one of his two others, and also I met a niece of his, a close uh, who, who knew him well, um, and both these women were in their early nineties. It was just like story before the end sort of thing. I was so blessed, so I feel very close to this topic because of his daughter and his niece and good associations. Well, Fred did his schooling in the neighborhood. Because there was a system, they, Six Nations were pretty well organized on this front. They had local schools, uh, primary schools, in many sections of the territory. And Fred went to one, which was near the farm. And uh, he was at that school till age 12. Now, these schools, it's quite extraordinary. There's something called the Mohawk Institute. It's an Indian residential school. And um, the Mohawk Institute, actually, a big positive, they actually trained the teachers for those schools. So he had native teachers. What a big plus. It really made a heck of a difference. The school experience wasn't great, um, and I'll come to that shortly. But for training these teachers, this gave the 
First Nations kids really a leg up. And he enjoyed school. When, as I say, he went to age 12. He was lucky, though. He spoke English already before he went to school because his parents spoke English. And they, 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 he, they, English was introduced to the family. He had several brothers. They learned English at home as well as speaking Mohawk. Mohawk was their native language, and nevertheless, they were bilingual. So he did well at school. Now, his parents, um, well, why not Mohawk Institute? So he applied, and uh, they applied, and he was accepted. So he went to residential school uh, in Brantford at Mohawk Institute. Now, already his brother, uh, well, he was he went for one year and he detested it. It was a bad experience. I'd like to introduce you to that because here's a very reasonable chap who really it's he found it just a terrible place. Now, mind you where he's coming from. He's coming from his family is very supportive. He's allowed the Six Nations way of childhood educations so different than the non-indigenous they were allowed uh, responsibilities able to make their own decisions uh, fred is a boy he loved to train wild horses uh, train horses that had, had never been ridden i mean the parents are this fine i mean he, he's allowed freedom at school no way the mohawk institute oh sure the primary school is fine but when he gets to the mohawk institute this is boot camp it was the regimentation the, the lack of imagination this was this was despicable for him he did this horribly unimaginative approach to education he that one didn't impress him at all but more than that was the food the food was terrible and the cold at night in the winter my gosh he, he later records this he said like sometimes i'd be half the night before i could sleep because i was so cold well fred went back home 18 well he's not far from home but anyways after one year at this place that was it and he told his parents that and they were they were supportive. I mean, that's just for a different society. We are so the Christian holding the Shoni. I mean, it's still it's, they're still First Nations people. They're totally different. Their interpretation is not part of the the, the script. And uh, anyways, his parents listened to him and they respected his opinion. Well, that's fine. Well, don't go back. Well, so, but Fred wasn't finished yet. He wanted to get an education. He didn't want to go to that place. That's all. So what he did was, and this is extraordinary for a young man of, what, 13, 14, whatever, very, very young guy, he decided he was going to walk to school in Caledonia, a neighboring non-Indigenous community right by the Six Nations Territory. It was a 15-kilometer round trip, and he did that. So off he goes there and prepares whatever preparation was necessary for high school, but about a year study, I think. But he's doing this by quotation marks, commuting uh, by foot, and um, was able to apply to high school in Caledonia and was accepted. Now, to, then at that point, he moves to Caledonia and he, he boards there. He get how does he pay for that? Well, he gets odd jobs, and um, it's it just he, he supports himself and he gets his high school. He gets a high school. I mean, high school education. This is so so rare. So I think you've got enough background here to know this man is determined, and he has he 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 wants to succeed in every respect and and um, fulfill himself. At this point, I don't think he knew exactly where he was going to end up, but he did get that high school education, which he felt was essential. Now there was discrimination. Well, it's discrimination now, let's be real. But then it was even rougher. But Fred, he was self-reliant. His family, his parents were totally supportive. And he knew he was good at school. My goodness, he was good all right. He went right through. Um, and uh, with 
like paying for his own education and all. And this discrimination that didn't, he inevitably he'd encounter it. But in the Six Nations, the Haudenosaunee, there is, uh, amongst the chiefs, there's a saying that uh, in, when you meet adversity and sort of a rough stage of life and all, somebody's bothering you, discriminating against you, or bullying you, or something of that sort, Haudenosaunee, the saying was, you had to have a skin seven thumbs thick. Well, Fred did. He got through this. This was these irritations. Let's pull on, call on that. Okay, time to get a job. So uh, Fred leaves high school, um, wants to make some money, becomes a lumberjack, and did well. He rose right, right up. This was in the forest in northern Michigan. Rose up from lumberjack to timber inspector. But ill health forced him to think of something else. And he applied and got a scholarship to the Ontario Business College. So already you see the wheels are turning. He's got, he's got this, he's going to follow this up. And he goes to Belleville, Ontario, studies accounting and gets his degree. Another extraordinary development for a First Nations person in the late 19th century. Well, unfortunately, he couldn't get a job as an accountant. So uh, disappointment, not at this stage, eventually he would, but not initially. So he, he he could write. He became a journalist for the Brantford Expositor. And in those days, the First Nations, well, because of Johnny McDonald, those that met the property qualification, those that had the, the who were easy and who knew English and, or, or French, and um, and also had, that was, had, had shown that they'd adopted to the larger society, they could vote in the federal elections. And so there's a political aspect to this. When Fred's with the expositor, he's, well, he's he's a liberal. And that's great because out of that association, Fred gets, the provincial liberals give him a job. After the journalist's experience, he gets a job at the bursar's office. Now, where he got the job is kind of bizarre, but um, he was employed as an accountant at the asylum for the insane in Toronto is not terrible. Nine ninety nine Queen Street. That's where he'd worked for thirty years as a as an accountant. And uh, anyways, with a job, and uh, well, the inmates actually had had no no the the First Nations um, had under the Indian Act had uh, well they had the same number of civil rights as the people in the Asylum for the Insane zero. They weren't regarded as citizens and they were. This is uh, so decided by ironic, but uh, so it was very, but for really, Fred, it was a government job and he he paid the bills, so that was good because he had lots of interests. He liked Toronto, he was there and he, it, he was in the militia, he was a mason, he loved sports, and he liked writing, did articles and stuff. He only been a journalist for a bit there, and uh, so he, he did well. He met um, a woman. Um, Alpha Greer, 11 years younger. She actually was living in Chicago, but was visiting Toronto. She had Canadian roots and they fell in love. There was a 11 year difference between them, but didn't matter. Sort of like the earlier episode of Nani and her husband, William Sutton. They had an age difference, but they got along extremely well. And Alpha and Fred did as well. They had uh, three daughters. One fortunately died young, but two lived to adulthood and I had the good fortune to meet one of his daughters, Alpha. Well, first glance, you'd think, you know, you go, you try to do the 
what I called, well, what full mill deal. You try to do everything. I checked the the, the directories for Toronto, and they, the lofts moved so frequently. I didn't understand this. They're nomadic. Um, is what, What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you the secret. Fred's job didn't pay. It was okay, but it wasn't paying super well. And so Alpha made money for the family by they would buy houses, uh, sort of fix them all up, and then they they sell them or, or rent them. And this is how the extra cash came in. They lived a comfortable life. Alpha and Fred had an upper middle class life in Toronto, thanks to her extra income. And they went. They were member. They had seasons tickets to um, two theaters. They participated in organizations. Uh, Fred's and the Masons. Alpha's in the American Women's Club, the America, uh, the Women's Art Association, and the United Emperor Loyalists. They's participating there. Um, and so they had quite a life. Now, they didn't lose the Six Nations touch. No, they're living. Well, Fred would visit regularly because his mother was still living and his brothers. So he'd, he'd go back. And oh, I had good fortune of meeting um, a relative of his that remembered. She was Ella Monture. She remembered, this is about 30 years ago, mind you, but she remembered seeing her uncle at church because Fred would always visit the Anglican church. He loved to practice his Mohawk when he went back home. And at the church, Ellen remembers, Ellen Montour Klaus, she remembers that, well, Fred, he certainly knew Mohawk, but he hadn't spoken it. He hardly ever, he wouldn't just speak it hardly ever. I mean, gosh, but back at the church, he's able to. And uh, she noticed he put Mohawk words in the wrong places on occasion. So very un, totally understandable. Um, he, Ella remembers too, the family would go to the church. They were elegantly dressed. They were well-spoken. Well, this is enough to make Fred, well, Fred, I mean, listen now, he's been working there. He's been working out, uh, off the territory for uh, about two decades now, and he's fluent in English. His wife is non-Indigenous. Why not enfranchise and get full civil rights? So he considers it. He's going to enfranchise. And that, again, is uh, the phrase has to be explained. And we've talked about it before in previous episodes, but I'll just quick run again. Enfranchisement means you give up your Indian status, you cease to be under the Indian Act, and you become a full citizen. Now, that because of the circumstances, Fred's not in any way saying he doesn't want to be an Indian anymore or whatever. I mean, it's not that. It's simply for, for advantages and making life much easier for him if he did. So he considers it. The Six Nations Council hears about this, and they head him off at the pass. No, don't do that, please. Instead, why not apply to become the head dog? Why not be like the Indian Affairs, the chief man of Indian Affairs at the Six Nations Territory? Become... That's what you should do, Fred, and we'll support you. And so he does. But, unfortunately, let's be realistic. Unfortunately, this is the last thing that, that Indian Affairs wants, is to have an accountant as charge of Indian Affairs in the territory. The last thing. Fred hasn't had a chance. I think we used to say a snowball's chance in hell of getting this job. And he didn't. <laughs> but anyways, it's a compliment that the Six Nations Council would consider him. He would be their candidate to be in charge of the operation in the Six Nations Territory. But it was not to be. So, back to 
development. Strato, they're living a upper middle class life. He and Alpha, and and but then the war comes. Now we're into the horrible World War One, and we'll get touches of that actually in a future episode in the story of the of Fred Albright, who's a Calgarian who enlists. We'll get that. It's coming. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible situation, and Fred feels strongly about it. He feels strongly because he's very. Britain was the Six Nations ally. They weren't subjects of Britain. They were allies. And he wanted to support Britain, so much so that he reduced his age from 56 to 45 in order to enlist. He was in great shape. He got right by then. <laughs> he always walked. He took care of himself and exercised daily. He was in great shape, and he passed the physical, and he had military experience, so he was made an officer. And he was assigned to the Canadian Forestry Corps in Europe and went overseas. There's a great picture of him with the Corps, and that's another photo. I was able to obtain that from Alpha. Alpha had that. So let me copy it. So it's in the textual version of this episode. The Six Nations supported him too, and they, he was named a Pine Tree Chief. That is, uh, so a Pine Tree Chief was one who was not a hereditary chief, but had the rights uh, to to appearing at, at the Six Nations Council. It's a great honor. So Fred, was he, went, he was being supported fully. Now, after the war, Fred decides that um, something's missing here. The First Nations just are not um, getting the support that they need, and they're not participating as fully as they might have. Uh, their, their sovereignty is not being respected. There's several issues that are really bothering him, and it's not just the Six Nations. It's First Nations groups across Canada. So he sets out to do something about it and founds the League of Indians of Canada. This is his big contribution. This is in 1918, late 1918, at the Six Nations. The first meeting is held actually in that wonderful historic council house at, at Oshwegan, the capital, if you will, of the Six Nations at, on the Six Nations territory. The League is founded, and Fred, his greatest ally, is the typewriter. He has no money. He's putting this League of Indians of Canada is supported by him out of his own pocket, really. He does, there's no government funding. There's nothing of that sort. It's hell, Fred. But he knows how to, well, business college, remember, and he's worked in the office for several decades. He has a typewriter. So he contacts groups right across Canada. Three conferences, uh, several conferences are held, and the progressive agenda is advanced. The major aspect is education. The First Nations, this is so contemporary. First Nations must be given an equal chance. They must be given full support with, with, with their educational programs. And it's a very progressive agenda. In fact, so progressive that a number of missionaries supported it. In fact, out the out here in Alberta, they had an Alberta wing to this, and their strong as Saskatchewan, the League of Indians of Canada was, was making progress. And missionaries, the Catholic missionary in the Pagan or Pecuni Reserve, here in southern Alberta, he collected money for the League of Indians of Canada. And boy, when Duncan Campbell Scott, who now is the Grand Poopa of Indian Affairs, he's Deputy Superintendent General, and we'll talk about him in the next episode. So again, I have to just keep it short on him. Well, he's so opposed, and he regards Fred Loft as diabolical. Fred Loft, I mean, he's... Duncan Campbell Scott at this point, and please, I don't want to just, I have my chance to do him 
in the next episode, but I don't want to just make him the center of it all. This is a mentality of an age. He's just a, the chief representative of it. He's applying the assimilationist policy. and He wants to introduce compulsory enfranchisement. That is, people like Fred Loft are, by the decision of the, the department, selected to be enfranchised. They don't choice. There's no choice in it. They're just they're just enfranchised. That uh, a bill actually reaches Parliament in 1920, and it's to get rid of people like Fred Loth, remove their Indian status. So, well, anyways, change of government, and uh, the the bill passed, but the Conservatives were out of power. The Liberals um, withdrew that, and so compulsory enfranchisement was not introduced in 1922. However, Fred Loth's problems are not over. There's a terrific opposition to him from. Duncan Campbell Scott. In fact, well, I just want to quote the, the Toronto Star, 28th of August, 1920. Uh, it quoted Fred Loft as saying, if anything is responsible for the backwardness of the Indians today, it is the domineering, dictating, vetoing method of the Indian department. The position and treatment of the Indian today is as if he were an imbecile. Isn't that quote? It says it all. He's working at the insane asylum. He knows all that. He knows how the those people are treated. He knows about the Indian Department, and he he's actually meet met Duncan Campbell Scott at one point, uh, domineering, dictating, vetoing. Uh, it, it, well, Scott is just red, showing red to a ball. He's absolutely furious, and he and well, he's got to deal with them because, well, he does all he can to oppose it trying to sabotage the league. But anyways, he gets a break because Ella, uh, uh, excuse me, Fred's wife, Alpha, Fred's wife is Bill in the mid-20s. And he has to, he resigns from his position in the Ontario Civil Service and Ian Alpha go to Chicago and he's there for four years. So that really takes the wind out of the sails. Um, and by the time Fred comes back, so much is, is, is the spirit of it, of the league is gone. And of course, there's no financing except his, uh, his basically just him. And um, several of the key players have had to withdraw themselves and, and sort of be reading the depression. So it's just, it's just no. The league is is pretty well kaput. But the contribution was made. He planted the seeds. Well, Fred, one last hurrah, that was to go to the Privy Council in London, the supreme legal body of the British Empire, and present the position of the First Nations of Canada and, and point out the injustices. And he began to raise a bit of money for this trip. It was going to cost a good, good amount of money and um, sent out letters to that effect. Duncan Campbell Scott, still in power, hears about this. And in 1927, the Indian Act was changed and it was made illegal to raise money for Indian land claims. It, it is 1927. That remains in for a generation, by the way, that rule. So they can't, this this is regarded by Scott as subversive and he can, uh, Loft can be persecuted under this new provision and um, he's prepared to do so. But he doesn't because Fred Loft, by the early 1930s, he doesn't get the financial support he needs. Unfortunately, money's not forthcoming. It's the beginning of the Depression. And secondly, his health is terrible. So it doesn't happen. And uh, Fred Loft's health uh, precarious by the 1933, 1934, he dies. And uh, there he goes. Uh, there, there goes a, a man who's made such a contribution, who stood up, just in the same spirit that he left at the residential school. Gee. They did. He just he's 
his family, his family, he had such a good background at home, and he had, and he took from the educational system uh, what he needed. He went to school in Caledonia, a business college. I mean, he he, he redressed this situation very well, and uh, with his personality, I, his wife Alpha helped too. I mean, great support there. All these factors came together to lead to the foundation of the League of Indians of Canada, which certainly can be regarded as a predecessor of the National Indian Brotherhood of the 1970s and eventually the Assembly of First Nations in the 1980s. The Assembly of First Nations is still, of course, very much in existence. So Fred Loft, a, a, a really a visionary for First Nations political organization and certainly deserves to be well-remembered today. Next episode, Duncan Campbell Scott, Fred Loft's nemesis.